Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields like geography, the visual arts, performing arts, storytelling, and literature. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith. I'm your host, Ellen Jordan. On this program, we're joined by Dr. Sean Graham. Dr. Graham is a professor at Carleton University where he teaches digital archaeology and digital humanities. Recent work includes studying the online trade in human remains, developing graph-theoretic representation of historic events, and publishing two books, Failing Gloriously and An Enchantment of Digital Archaeology. He is the founder and editor of the open access journal Apoesen, a journal for creative engagement in history and archaeology. Sean, thank you so much for being with us today. Before we uh, get into some of the nitty-gritty about the tools of your particular trade in digital archaeology, you, I guess, are a self-identified digital archaeologist. So how did you get to be a digital archaeologist? Because I don't think your parents sent you to digital archaeology preschool. (laughs) Such things did not exist when I was going to school. I come from north of Ottawa, up in the bush, on the Quebec side of the river. And in Quebec, between high school and university, there's a two-year public system called CEJAP, Collège d'enseignement général et pratique. I went to CEJAP after high school and signed up for a diploma in liberal arts because I suddenly was in a space where there were lots of other kids who were interested in all sorts of different things. And it was such a different environment. There were people from all over the province. There were people from Montreal. So it was really an exciting place to be. And the most exciting, most interesting people all were studying classical arts and music and literature. And, you know, the thing you see on TV, what college is supposed to be, the Gothic architecture, the whole nine yards. We had an opportunity to go to Greece on a field trip. So it was an excavation at the medieval site, the Monastery of Zaraka, which is on Lake Stymphalus near Corinth, where Heracles fought the Stymphalian birds in classical mythology. Not a whole lot happened there until the time of the Fourth Crusade, when the Latin crusaders set up a Cistercian monastery. So we were excavating the monastery, which was exciting. I'm 18, and it's the first time I'm out of the bush, and I'm having an adventure in the mountains of Greece. And on the excavation, the trench next to mine had this skeleton and the head was missing, but there was a stone block in its place that had clearly been placed there shortly after the person died. So the head had been removed. And it turns out that in the Balkans, it's more of a safety feature because when you're dealing with a vampire, it turns out you want to keep them from rising from the grave. So you make sure that they feel like, you know, head and shoulders, knees and toes, everything's here. Why can't I get out of the grave? It's because we've swapped out your noggin for uh, something else. So the professional archaeologists were digging that, and that just blew my mind. I was in the trench next to it clearing rubble, just one damn brick after another. That's what 18-year-olds do. <laughs> yeah, so I was, I was stupid, and that sounded like fun to sit out in the sun and dig holes. So when I went to university, I signed up for an archaeology degree, and there's only a few in Canada. So when you say university, this is after the two-year sort of in-between thing? Exactly. So it's a four-year program. And I signed up for one of the few archaeology programs in Eastern Canada. 
And uh, I was right into it. I was right into the art historical side of it, the classical stuff. Did more Latin things, more Roman things than Greek, because Latin is easier than Greek. This is in the early 90s when the web first emerges. So in a profound piece of writing, I had a prof, and the prof said, I want you to go onto this World Wide Web and do a webography of what you can find about the Etruscans. So a bibliography, but of websites. So I waited for my turn to get a computer in the computer lab. And I typed in Etruscans into the Alta Vista search engine directory. And the first result that came back was the Sex Communist Manifesto. So I duly wrote that paper that you write for your professor when you think your professor's been an idiot and asked you to do something stupid because you're a, you know, all of 20 years old and you know everything. That began with this so-called World Wide Web will never be of practical use to academics. So I didn't get my head out of my ass until many years later. I did grad school in Britain and in Italy, but when I came back to Canada, I had no academic social network. I had no connections. I was pretty much unemployed and unemployable. So in order to pretend to myself that I was still an archaeologist, I started blogging, you know, and thanks mom for reading my blog for all those years. And that let me hold on to that identity even when I was doing many other things. To me, like archaeology, anthropology, these are storytelling paradigms. So it sounds like that's what you were trying to do. Yeah, I was trying to tell a story. I was trying to make the previous five, six years count for something. And I would find secondhand archaeological data on university websites. You know, somebody would post a, a PDF or something. And so I would play with it or I would try and build a model and I would just talk about, okay, well, that didn't really work, but here's this new technology I found about. It kind of works. And so I started doing this thing where I would just lay it all out. I had archaeological data for my PhD that wasn't getting published. So I put that out there too. And doing all these things, it turned out positioned me for that one perfect moment where there was an advertisement for somebody to be the digital humanities guy. When people weren't even sure what that meant, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I could make models and I knew how to maybe communicate online. And that turned out to be the right combination at the right place. You want to call it a superhero origin story is just such a pile of luck and wrong turns. And But one of the most important things that happened was that I did get a few months as a postdoc at the University of Manitoba for Professor Leah Sterling. And at that point, I'd given up largely about being an academic. And so when I saw the advertisement, I said, to hell with it. I'm just going to put in what I want to do. I said, I want to kill Romans. I did this spiel about agent modeling. And Leah phoned me up and she said, so we got your application. And so I'm, I'm stealing myself right there for, okay, okay. And she says, and we didn't understand a word of it. And I'm like, oh, shoot. And I was like, well, you know, thank you for your time. And she says, no, no, let's give it a try. It sounds interesting. So she was able to support me for about a year as a postdoc. And just a little bit of breathing space gave me enough time to start pulling together these disparate threads that were coming. So that one person taking that chance on this crazy idea, in hindsight, I can look at that and see how that led to a bunch of other things lining up. This whole academic shtick is so full of luck and privilege that you can only be humble in the face of that. Luck is being ready. It's luck, but you got to be ready and jump on it. And, you know, like you said, I'm just going to write my own job description here because this is the stuff that I want to do that I find compelling and interesting. Well, let me tell you about the first thing I tried to do when I was at Carleton. So it's a public history department is one of its big focuses. 
What does public history mean? Is there private history? And I'm not being facetious. Well, in the same way that you're doing public humanities right now with this program, public history is community history, it's national museum collections, it's community-based, engaged kind of work. So I cooked up an oral history project on the web that would let people tell their stories. And it worked great for about six months, and then I didn't read the security updates on the platform I was using. And the whole damn thing got nuked by uh, one robot selling another robot, Viagra, to gullible humans. And I was absolutely crushed because I hadn't been in the job for hardly more than a year at this point. So I'm in a department that's not an archaeology department, uh, doesn't do any ancient history. And the first thing I've just done has totally flubbed. And so on Electric Archaeology, on the blog, I said, okay, this has happened. Here's what we can do. I can either sweep it under the rug and say version two is coming soon, or here's what really happened. And I I just laid it all out because I was gutted. But I had already developed a habit of sharing what hasn't worked. And then in the response to that piece were so many people thanking me for doing that and also reminding them to look into their own projects. There's nothing like screwing up in public to... um, be able to say to your students, when I tell you that I'm okay with your technical stuff not working, I seriously mean it. What I'm interested in is how you think. You know, I was still very much in my own head. So initially, I was encouraging all of my students to do just the same thing because it worked out for me. Well, that's really profoundly stupid. You know, that has changed how I teach and how I approach things. I think it's kind of exciting that you're helping to raise up a whole generation now of digital humanists and digital historians and digital archaeologists. But I'm a little bit curious about how some of this is taught. Do you feel like you're teaching through the making and the breaking of the things? There's so much anxiety, right, about doing something digital in the first place. But, you know, students are very good at the game of being a student. And we've set up these systems that really drive it into their skulls to, you know, here's a lecture, here's a midterm, here's a final, here's the exam, barf it all out, rinse, repeat. And when you screw with that game, when you are asking them to do things that don't look like an essay, that don't look like a traditional exam, there's a lot of resistance and a lot of pushback. I had a student say to me, if I wanted to do digital stuff, I wouldn't have taken a history class. And I said, but it's called digital history. But I focus on breaking things and just being okay with things not working because all of this ultimately is a function of practice and exposure. And so I'm not grading them on the fact that they haven't had an opportunity to practice or be exposed to this stuff before. But what I can work on them with is thinking through what the process means and tying that process into larger method debates or larger social issues or larger whatever The classes that I'm teaching at the moment right now, I want them to push themselves. I give them a whole series of different technologies or approaches to work on. I ask them to push themselves until they get stuck. And then they have to tell me how they got stuck, why they got stuck, how they got out of that. Where does that connect to these different things I've given you to read? If it comes easy, then they haven't gone far enough. You know you're doing it right when you're finally crying in front of the computer. I say to them, do it in 30 minutes. And if it doesn't come in 30 minutes, it ain't coming in three hours. No heroic lone scholar here. Digital humanities, digital history is a team sport. So I have to get them to unlearn so many different things that the system has beat into them. And if I read another five paragraph essay, I'm going to stab a fork through my hand. 
we're talking about you teaching your students here. So, you know, if you don't want to see the five paragraph essay that makes you want to put a fork through your head, when you've seen the really good work come out of your students, what does that actually look like instead of the five paragraph essay? And what platforms are they actually executing these kind of projects on? Well, I mean, let's think about why the five paragraph essay hurts so much. It's a structure that becomes a fetish, right? And it's written for an audience of no one. You write one of those things because you know the prof has 60 of them and he's not going to actually read it very much either. In a system like that, plagiarism or using a, a service to write your stuff, you can understand quite easily why that is a rational response. So the work that actually seems meaningful to me is that students do is when it's meaningful to them as well, but when it actually emerges out of the work that I'm asking them to do. And it can happen across all sorts of different platforms. So what I focus on with them in the day-to-day -day of the class is just recording their process, recording their thinking, recording their reaction, and then thinking, how does this intersect with the things I've read? And that means teaching them how to read, right? You think they would know how to read, but there's reading. There's reading for pleasure, which is different than reading for academic stuff, which is different than reading because it's 10 p.m. the day before the final. Getting people to read and read collaboratively. So there's a thing called Hypothesis, which is a layer for a web browser that allows people to collaboratively annotate PDFs or websites. And so seeing how other people read seeing what people attend to. You know, you can look at it and see it's all marked up and you say, but everybody avoided this whole paragraph here. Why? Well, because that's the scary paragraph that nobody wants to touch in case they're wrong. It's the third rail. It's the third rail. So trying to create a sense of it being okay in my classroom to admit when something isn't connecting the way that I want it to connect. And that means me too, admitting where I've screwed up in my failures. But I mean, the other thing is too, students have been conditioned into a lot of one-way knowledge transfer, and they have these expectations of what university is supposed to be like. Right now, I'm teaching mostly third-year students, but if I can teach first-year students, that's where those expectations are strongest. And if I can undermine that at first, that would be good. You're pretty subversive in your way, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Sean... We can't thank you enough for your time and generosity to talk about your work with us today. This was a lot of fun. It's always fun to talk about this stuff. And if you would like more information about Sean and his work, you can visit electricarchaeology.ca. That's electric, A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y dot C-A. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council, produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan Klum. So you can find me just sitting at my crossroads waiting for the light to change, and the same familiar faces come out to